Hi everyone, I'm your host Ng, and welcome to the 33rd episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Howard Yaros, author of the book, Understandable Economics, because understanding our economy is easier than you think, and more important than you know. Part of the synopsis reads that incomes are stagnating, middle class jobs are disappearing, economic growth is slowing, and the meagre gains are mostly going to those who are already wealthy. More Americans than ever are frustrated by the direction in which we are headed. And in Understandable Economics, Howard aims to replace this frustration with a practical understanding of our economy and empower readers to identify and advocate for a better approach to the problems we face. It was great discussing the book with Howard. I hope you enjoyed the episode. have people lost faith in the economic system? Well, as I discussed in Understandable Economics, we're becoming more of a winner-take-all economy. There's less opportunity now. And why is there less opportunity? In a word, the internet. If you set up a shop in one city in 1950 and wanted to do business in another city, it was expensive. When I was a kid, long-distance phone calls were expensive. It was expensive and difficult to do business in various locations. And now with the cost-free platform of the internet, Jeff Bezos could do business everywhere on the planet Earth and he could do it all with no transaction cost. So it just gives economists and business people call it economies of scale. It enables the bigger companies to get even bigger and dominate the smaller ones. And you started off the book by saying economics is not a scientific discipline that requires expert knowledge and specialized tools to gain an understanding. Does this link into why you chose to write this book? Oh, absolutely. In the epilogue, I say the original title for the book was Economics for Activists. I think so many people are intimidated by economics. I don't know whether, did you ever take a course in economics? No, I didn't. I don't mean to put you on the spot. (laughs) It's fine. First of all, let's start with the fact that you didn't take a course in economics. Most people in America don't take courses in economics. But in high school, in secondary school in America, you have to take trigonometry. Trigonometry, that is so much less important than knowing about how the economy works in any event. And I have a lot of respect for math. I was a math major. The point being that if you take economics in college, it's often taught as a bunch of assumptions and formulas. It's taught with all this jargon. And it's just wrong because you can't just plug numbers into a formula and come out with an answer that is correct. What it's about is how we allocate society's wealth, how we allocate the goods and services our economy is turning out. In physics, you could plug a bunch of things into an equation and get an answer for the speed of a star or or whatever you're looking for. But when it comes to economics, it's about values. How do we divide up society's wealth? How do we divide up society's product? And to say, well, we'll have the economists do that, you're just punting to them. You're not recognizing that it involves value judgments. And there's no absolutely correct answer to that the way there is in physics and biology. It's a judgment. And we all should be involved in that judgment. I got the impression in the earlier chapters of your book is that the economic system is creating greater inequality, which you highlight. Why and how is this the case? Well... The internet, again, is creating great economies of scale. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, can do business on a global scale with no transaction costs. 
1950, there were enormous transaction costs. If you had a shop in New York and wanted to do business in San Francisco, you'd have to figure out all the rules in San Francisco. You'd have to have all these trips back and forth. You'd have to have these long-distance phone calls. Now, the few dominant people in each industry can dominate the whole industry in a way that they couldn't in the past. I also use the example in understandable economics of singers. Before you had, more than 100 years ago, people went to music halls to hear music. And now one great performer or a couple of great performers can record their music and they could play it an infinite number of times throughout the world. So it really benefits the few superstars, the few producers who are really good and really popular, making it more difficult for everyone else to earn a living. And there are terms which are constantly thrown about in the media when it comes to the economy, such as capitalism and socialism and etc. Why did you make the conscious effort not to focus on these terms in the book? Because the terms have really lost their meaning. A pet peeve of mine is Donald Trump is often referred to as a conservative. He has basically changed all of the rules regarding the U.S. presidency. There are so many examples of the words, the term socialist is being used all the time to talk about people who merely want to raise taxes to the level that we had when Dwight Eisenhower, who was a Republican general, was president. How is that socialism? So these terms are more likely to be used as insults than as terms that help explain someone's worldview. So my thought is just to throw that all out and to talk about what's really going on in the world. How do you know what's going on in the world? You look at it and try to assess it without all this jargon and all these terms. say an interesting point about us believing in money is perhaps the greatest opinion in mankind. Why was this necessary for us to believe in it for the whole economic system as we know it to work? It's really shocking because as I say in the book that there are now 8 billion people on the planet that you couldn't get them all to agree on the exact location of the Empire State Building or the Marble Arch. But yet every single one of them would give 10 single dollar bills for a $10 bill literally everyone. They value the $10 bill 10 times as much. And objectively, there's no reason. The only difference between those two pieces of paper is the U.S. Treasury put a 10 on one of the bills and a 1 on the other. Why is this important? Because it makes trade possible. If we were going to try to figure out how many books I'd have to give to the supermarket to get the food I need, it would never work. It's just by reducing everything to a, in the U.S. a dollar figure or a pound figure, you can more easily buy and sell things. It all gets converted to currency, and then you convert the currency into what you need. It just makes trade so much easier. And the point that I keep making in the book is that was a great innovation. It enabled us to move out of the caves and build houses and do all sorts of great things. It's just there are problems with the system, and you can't necessarily fault the whole system. The system has been great. It's enabled people, again, to have a better life than almost at any other point in the history of mankind. But what we have to do is regulate it properly so the most people get the most benefit out of the system. And this, what you're talking about is the creation of the fiat currency yes. from, let's say, not directly from the barter system, but what started as the barter system up until the fiat currency system that we have now, isn't it? Yes, well, it's kind of interesting, although it's become increasingly irrelevant. It started as precious metals like gold and silver, and that served as money for thousands of years. But that's cumbersome. It's hard to assess. If someone shows you a gold bar, how pure do you know it is? 
So that was a problem. And then about the time they invented the printing press in Europe in the 1400s, this sort of paper currency backed by gold and silver. And the Medicis of Florence would issue this paper money that worked fine until a few of them got greedy and started issuing more certificates than they had gold. I think they see that literally this week with FTX, the Sam Bankman-Fried fiasco. He took in all this, all this cryptocurrency and then loaned a lot of it out and didn't really have it sitting there for the people he was supposedly safeguarding it for. So the commodity-backed money had a problem because you had to trust the person who was issuing these notes. And basically the 19th century, the governments of the world took this over. And most of the time it worked. Sometimes as in the Weimar Republic in Germany or in Zimbabwe, it didn't work. They printed too much money and the money lost value. And inevitably, the country's government fell apart. And a lot of people in the case of the Weimar Republic wound up dying. And why are tax cuts focused on poorer people as opposed to those who are the wealthiest? That's an interesting one that a lot of politicians, at least in the U.S., actually trust came up with that as well. She was going to give tax cuts to the wealthy. And what is that hope to achieve? Let's let's say the one of the points in the book, Understandable Economics, is that you can figure out a lot of this through common sense. What happens when a wealthy person gets a tax cut? They probably just save it. What happens when a middle income person or a lower income person gets it? They're much more likely to go out, buy a nice meal, buy extra groceries. And what happens when they spend more money? Businesses start doing better and need more employees. So they hire more employees and producing more goods and services because there's demand for more goods and services. The bottom line is the economy grows. By giving tax cuts to middle-income and lower-income people, they start spending. There's more demand for the stuff the economy produces and businesses grow. The fact is that if you give it to a wealthy person, the business is not going to grow if there's not more demand for whatever they're selling. The fact that they may have a few more investors saying, hey, if you need money, we'll invest in your business, isn't going to interest them, again, if they don't have more customers. It's more customers that causes businesses to grow, more jobs to appear. And how do you do that? You funnel any tax cut that you decide to give to people who actually spend the money. What is the thought process behind the government deciding to give tax cuts to wealthier people as opposed to poorer people, would you say then? Especially when considering what you said, more wealthier people are going to save the money and poorer people are going to essentially simulate the economy because they'll spend more money. So why is it that they tend to choose to go that way and give the tax cuts to the wealthiest in society, do you feel? Well, at least in the United States, politicians have to raise money to run for office, and the people who are giving them the money are the people who are going to get those tax cuts. They're constantly hearing from their wealthy donors that this is what they want. And as I point out in the book, they call it regulatory capture. The government is sitting around with these people, they dine with them, they go golfing with them, and the average person doesn't have as much access to the people in government making these decisions. So they want to keep their base happy. They need to keep their base happy to continue the flow of cash that enables them to get reelected. That is a good segue to my next question, actually, because I wanted to ask you what drives corporations' behaviours and how have they become so powerful? Well, this is something I, I like to think of my book as being objective. I'm sympathetic to the claim that the goal of the corporation is to earn a profit. 
if they're polluting, if they're ripping off consumers, if they're not treating their workers fairly, that's on us. They're there to make a profit. We as a society have to make rules for them to operate ethically, fairly, and justly. And if we're not doing that, actually Donald Trump said this about not paying taxes. There was a big issue he didn't pay taxes. I fault him for a lot of things, but I don't fault him for that. If we set the rules that enabled him to get away without paying much in taxes, that's on us, not him. And it's the same thing with corporations. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Understandable Economics, because people have to realize economics just can't be left to the economists because there are values that permeate it and that you need rules, laws that reflect those values. And if you just sit back and let some other people do it, the laws that result may not reflect your values. And I think that's what's happened. There are a lot of problems with the way corporations act in our society, and they're there to earn a profit. I'm sympathetic to them. Our job is not to hope that they somehow reform themselves. Our job is to set clear rules for them to abide by so that what they do is in accordance with our values as a society. Is this something that is quite difficult to achieve, especially considering the power that corporations and lobbyist groups have, um, as opposed to individuals when it comes to changing these type of things? That's a really good question. And yes, if it were, if it were so easy, it would have happened by now. So that's a simple answer to that. In the United States, we have the Supreme Court in a case called Citizens United, which said that corporations could spend unlimited money supporting candidates. If they don't like a candidate, they could simply say, we're going to take our basically unlimited wallet and support someone who would be more favorably disposed to our views. So yes, that is a big problem. I think it would be great if we could somehow undo that decision. But the bottom line is voters have the right to pull the plug on these people. And for a variety of reasons, it's very difficult. Money speaks very loudly. And there's a lot of cash floating around in our society, especially with, we talked a moment ago about the winner take all. There are some enormously wealthy people in our society now, wealthier than people have ever been in the history of mankind. And these people are spending a lot of money to influence the political process. And that cascade of cash really, really resonates. There seems to be a lack of understanding about national debt. How has the coverage of this in the past been so misleading? Well, it's so convenient for politicians to say, well, we can't afford this, we can't add to the debt. And they cite a figure of 20 trillion or 30 trillion, and I can't get my head around those numbers. I have the anecdote in the book about some congressperson not knowing whether something was 1 billion or 1 million. And the difference between that is like the difference between not knowing whether your sandwich you had for lunch cost $10 or $10,000. That's the order of magnitude. We just can't get our head around these numbers. So what I do in the book is divide the debt by all the Americans. And it comes out to like $68,000 per American with $1,000 a year in interest payments. And you could decide that's too high. But you can at least get your head around. You can at least begin to have an intelligent conversation about it when you know that every American owes $68,000 and every American pays $1,000 a year in interest, we can begin to discuss, do, should we cut education for kids or Social Security, or can we live with that? 
And the point that I make, I have an opinion on that, is that almost everyone who went to medical school, started a business, certainly bought a home, has a debt higher than that, and you wouldn't call them irresponsible. So again, it's a value judgment that should be made by people and not by politicians or economists without the input of the average person. And would you mind touching on what would you say is the cost of the government having an unbalanced budget? Well, when the economy is not doing well, if people aren't spending and businesses, of course, don't spend because no one's shopping there or buying their stuff and the government's not spending, more and more people get laid off. There's even less spending and you, the economy goes into a death spiral. So the government has to step up and spend. And yes, in those cases, the government has to spend and spend big. When the economy is doing fine, the government should be mindful of its budget. On the other hand, there's a lot of government spending that pays for itself. They've estimated that Head Start education for primarily poor young children in the U.S. has a 13% return. That's a no-brainer. You pay a dollar today and you make more money back later on in terms of higher taxes and fewer social costs and kids benefit. So again, it depends what you're spending on. It's just like a person's budget. If you're spending money to go to medical school and or to start a great business, that makes sense. If you're spending money to feed a bad drug addiction or go on some lavish vacation, no, it doesn't make sense. It all comes down to what makes sense and people just can't buy into that simple argument, government spending is bad or government spending is good. It all has to do with what the government is spending on. Some is good, some is bad. And it's best when people know what's going on because the people who are making those decisions may not have the same values as you. Absolutely. So I also want to ask you, how is human capital the most empowering form of capital, as you mentioned in the book? Oh, I always ask, thanks for that question. I always ask this question in class. What do Germany, Switzerland and Japan have in common? And what do the Congo, Venezuela and Russia have in common? The latter three have enormous natural resources, Venezuela, oil, Congo, all sorts of resources, and, and Russia as well. And it's so interesting because Germany, Japan, and Switzerland have nothing. They literally have no natural resources, and yet they're among the richest nations in the world. And then I ask, why is that? And the answer is, it's human capital, it's education. People know how to do things there. And when you invest in people, you not only make the society wealthier, but you make people better off in every conceivable way. And you also insulate them in a certain way, because if a madman takes over your country, as we've seen in a certain country in Europe, you can leave and use your skills elsewhere. You're not beholden to them. So it's not only great for the economy, but it's great for humanity. And it's a really empowering kind of thing. It's something that the government should be very strongly behind. And unfortunately, in the United States, what we see today is, is education budgets getting cut, which is really unfortunate. I don't know how it is in the UK, but I have a suspicion, since they're such similar countries, we see that as well. Indeed, there's constantly looking for ways to make cuts to public services or things that will benefit the individual or children or the youth that would essentially allow them to become the citizens of tomorrow that we so will rely on, isn't it? It's so short-sighted because every old person's pension is reliant upon a young person being productive. It's very short-sighted. Lastly, Howard, what actions do you suggest people should do to get more involved in understanding economics? 
Well, in the epilogue to the book, I urge people to get involved, to get interested in, in politics, to potentially run for office, to protest for a cause, to really not sit back and let people who are either less informed or don't have the same values you have make these decisions. So I urge people to get involved. I like to think the book is a little bit of a push for some people. It gives them some more knowledge about how the system works. But ultimately, for a democracy to work, people have to be informed and they have to be involved. And it doesn't work if they don't. It just seeds the playing field to people who may have very, very different values and interests than they have. And so there's no easy answer to it. There's no simple way to have a great and productive and fair society if people just sit back and allow whatever to happen to happen. And I would say in America, we've been lucky. We've had for many years, great leaders and the society has really grown. But I fear that now there are more leaders out there who are not so great. And if people don't act as a check on the system, it's not going to function for them. That was Howard Yaris, author of the book, Understandable Economics, because understanding our economy is easier than you think and more important than you know. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Howard for coming onto the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done it already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.